Welcome to the latest episode of Comic Book Physics, released through Bureau 42. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. This month, we're looking at a topic that was suggested by Alexander Case. It's a specifically a look at supermetals, or at least the original suggestion was supermetals such as adamantium and vibranium. I'm going to throw in a bit of talk about kryptonite and other exotic materials like that. It is not at all uncommon for comic books to introduce some sort of metals or compounds that, as far as we can tell, simply don't exist in our world. So the question becomes, how likely is it that these elements, compounds, alloys, whatever, these materials could exist with the properties as described and somehow evade detection? When you're talking about materials like these, they really come in three varieties. They're either elements, compounds, or alloys. Elements are the basic building blocks of reality. They are the smallest chemically unique items that you can have. These are what appear on the periodic table, and compounds and alloys are made up of elements combined in various different ways. So these days, the periodic table is mostly complete. In order to come up with an element we haven't seen, it would have to be attached to the end of the table or beyond. And that runs into stability issues. The elements of the periodic table are arranged largely due to the way that the electrons orbit the nuclei. When Mendeleev originally created the periodic table, it didn't look the way it did today. His periodic table was more like a checkerboard with rules about going up and down, left and right, and along each of the diagonals, which means it was not as effective as today's table, but it was still effective enough to accurately predict three elements which had either been not discovered or not identified yet. One of the elements was being studied by a particular team of researchers and had been for about a year and a half, but they were under the impression that it was a compound which had been previously unidentified, and they were having difficulties decomposing it into its component elements. It wasn't until Mendeleev published his table and said, and we'll find an element with these properties, that they said, oh, we've already got that. This thing we've been studying has all these properties, and we've been completely unable to break it apart. So it helped reinforce the discovery of that element and reinforce the strength of Mendeleev's table. Didn't take long for people to find the other two elements that Mendeleev predicted to fill in those gaps. But it took several decades after that before scientists realized the quantum mechanical nature of these elements and that we have a tightly packed nucleus in the center with electrons orbiting around it. And specifically, it was Wolfgang Pauli who discovered the fact that these electrons are only allowed to exist in very specific orbits, and they cannot share. It was the Pauli exclusion principle was the key to the current periodic table. That's the one that said, in addition to these specific orbits that Bohr originally proposed, we cannot have electrons sharing orbits. We can't have four electrons in the same orbit. If there's an electron in that spot, that spot is taken. And the electron orbits that keep it closest to the nucleus on average and take the most energy to pull that electron away from the nucleus are the ones in the lowest energy shell, where they talk about high and low, not so much in terms of physical position, but more in terms of energy states. And that energy shell has space for two electrons, which is why that first row of the periodic table has two elements. The next energy shell for the electrons to orbit within has space for eight electrons, which is why we've got eight elements in the next row of the periodic table and 8 beyond that, 18, 18, and so forth. So with Wolfgang Pauli's discovery that electrons cannot share orbits, Paul Dirac was the one who said, hey, we need to rearrange the periodic table of the elements. And Dirac was the one who arranged that periodic table into the form that seems customary and comfortable to us today. So in order to add elements to the periodic table, we need to create elements that we're not finding in nature. And the question is, why are we not finding them? 
If you take a look at the periodic table, most modern tables will have a list of elements at the end, and they are unable to mark them as solid, liquid, or gas, as we do on most periodic tables. Instead, they're labeled man-made. So these are ones we haven't found in nature. And the reason we don't know if they're solid, liquid, or gas is because we can't get enough of them under normal conditions to combine into their natural shapes and structures and stick around long enough for us to determine what kind of elements they are. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that we have to create these elements one nucleus at a time. For that, we take particle accelerators, which do what they sound like. You put particles in one end or in one entry point, and they accelerate them. There could be linear accelerators, which is basically just one long run. The particle goes through once and comes out the other end faster. Or it can have cyclotrons and synchrotrons, where the elements go around either in a spiral pattern or in a closed loop, like at CERN, out in France and Switzerland or more specifically under France and Switzerland. And those allow us to get up to higher energies, but they're also tougher to work on an engineering perspective because you have to take these very high energy particles and steer them into a circular path, which also means all the particles in your accelerating need to be about the same size, same mass, same energy, because the force that you use to steer one particle at one energy state would be different than the force you'd use to steer a different particle in a different energy state. And these are usually the accelerators that we use to create new elements. So we will accelerate smaller elements around and around and around and around, smash them into each other so hard that they connect. And once they're connected and joined, they will become a nucleus. And thus the new element exists, even if it's only for a very brief period of time. And most of them are very brief. That's the second limitation on mad-made elements. The problem with them is that the nucleus is bound by a force called the strong nuclear force. There are four forces in nature. One is the electromagnetic force. Another is the gravitational force. Those are the two that most people are familiar with. The other two are the weak and strong nuclear forces. The weak nuclear force is responsible for radioactive decay and a lot of those processes, while the strong nuclear force is responsible for binding that nucleus together. Now, the strong nuclear force is a very powerful force, but it's also got very limited range. If it didn't have a limited range, it would just overpower all of the forces in nature all the tables, all planets, they'd all just be compressed into one giant nucleus as that force overpowered everything. And that's what holds the nucleus together when it's made of positive and neutrally charged particles with your protons and your neutrons, or at a deeper level, a couple different types of quark, but still with more positive charge than negative. Without that strong nuclear force, the electromagnetic force would rip every nucleus apart. There's just way more positive charge than negative. It is difficult to create stable nuclei with very large numbers of protons because the space between them, or the size of that nucleus, starts to exceed the range of the strong nuclear force. So what happens is that a positively charged quark or proton on one side of the nucleus can strongly repel a positively charged quark or proton on the other side of the nucleus. And if that nucleus is too large, they don't feel the strong nuclear force holding them together and instead you just have this driving force trying to rip that nucleus apart. When they get large enough, that force that's trying to rip the nucleus apart wins. You get an unstable nucleus. So you can jam it together for a brief period of time, just long enough to say, yeah, we made the thing, and then it tears itself apart. So if these exotic metals or exotic compounds we're looking at are going to be other elements, well, then we have serious radioactive stability issues because we've already found pretty much all the elements that can survive and last naturally for extended periods of time. So you're not going to be digging through the African jungles and finding a chunk of the vibranium element. It would be far too unstable. You'd basically be finding a nuclear bomb in the process of blowing up instead. 
so we couldn't have something that had been sitting there since the days of the dinosaurs. The other issues with that come down to chemical stability. As you get larger and larger nuclei, you get more and more protons in that nucleus, which means you can have more and more electrons in the outer shells. Now, as you fill the lowest energy shells, you get higher and higher energies, which means it's easier and easier to strip the electrons away or to add new electrons to these elements, which has another side effect. That means these are not only radioactively unstable and the nucleus tears itself apart, but they're chemically unstable, which means your chunk of vibranium in the ground is going to start reacting with the dirt it's buried in, and it's not going to be long before it's simply not vibranium anymore. So if we are going to be dealing with new elements, we need to somehow maximize the stability. One thing that you probably would want to do is to give them four bonds. So looking at something like a carbon or a silicon, that gives a lot more flexibility in terms of what structures we can build. Because the structures in the way that the nuclei arrange themselves are also very important. The structure alone is what distinguishes graphite from diamond. As most people know, diamond is an extremely difficult material to break. In scientific terms, it's brittle. Now, brittle scientifically doesn't mean fragile, as it does colloquially. What brittle means scientifically is that it breaks before it bends. So you won't be able to bend a diamond, but if you apply a tremendous amount of pressure or energy to it, you can break it. And that's simply because the way that the nuclei are arranged is very different than they are arranged in graphite. In diamonds, the nuclei are arranged as though they're essentially the corners of cubes but they also have interlocking cubes within them. So imagine that in your nuclei form the eight corners of a six-sided die. Now you've got another set of four atoms that also form the eight corners of a six-sided die. Well, the way diamonds arrange themselves, the neighboring cubes actually overlap. So if you picture these cubes as being made out of tinker toys or some other construction tool where you've got the little plastic rods with a lot of space between them, well, inside each cube of a diamond, there's the corners of two other diamond cubes, which are also bonded to the atoms within this diamond and to each other. The individual bonds are not quite as strong as some of the bonds in graphite, which we'll discuss in more detail in a moment, but it's much more stable because you can't just break one bond to break that compound. You've got to break dozens and dozens of them. You've got to just tear the entire thing apart at once, and that's where the tremendous amount of energy comes from, and that's why it breaks before it bends. To bend it, you're just adjusting one spot. That doesn't happen with diamond. Graphite's a little bit different. In graphite, they don't, the atoms don't arrange themselves into three-dimensional shapes. They're actually two-dimensional shapes. So instead of forming cubes, you'll get six atoms joining together to form a hexagon. And then another group of atoms will form a new hexagon using one of the sides of the first hexagon as a side of the new one. So it's a series of hexagonal structures, like having hexagonal floor tiles on a floor with atoms at every corner. This is actually very stable within the plane. So you have the sheet of hexagons, and it's very difficult to break any atoms within that sheet. It's actually harder to break a sheet of graphite than it is to break a lot of diamonds. Why is graphite then so fragile that it becomes a very easy writing instrument as the quote-unquote lead within a pencil? Well, that's because each sheet of hexagons is very, very loosely attached to the next sheet. They're actually stacked in planes on top of each other with a relatively large amount of space between them. So when you write with a pencil, you're just cleaving off these strong sheets of graphite. And that's why the pencil lead stays put on the page, but comes off the lead quite easily. That's also why cheap leads tend to break off in chunks. Part of it is that if they're made too cheaply, then those graphite sheets are not properly stacked. 
So instead of being layered on top of each other, you get some sheets that are jammed in at angles with sheets next to them, and they break off. Or you can get graphite that's not pure carbon, and you've got other elements in it, which we'll talk about more in a moment, but those other elements can either increase or decrease the strength of that material, depending on how they are inserted and how everything's arranged. So it is very unlikely that your adamantiums and vibraniums, your kryptonites, it's very unlikely that any of these are going to be previously unseen elements. So the next option for these new materials is compounds. So compounds are things like water, which takes two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen and mixes them together into H2O. So under normal conditions, say room temperature, typical pressure, the kind of conditions you'd have just when you're sitting around in a living room or apartment or house, wherever you happen to live, naturally occurring water is going to be a liquid, while the naturally occurring hydrogen and oxygen would be highly volatile gases as opposed to a fairly stable liquid. So taking these elements and mixing them into compounds where electrons are shared between two atoms or two nuclei, that can produce something new and different with a new set of properties that works nicely. Now a compound like water combined with what we call covalent bonds, which is where the electrons are shared between specific nuclei. In metals, you get ionic bonds, where electrons can sort of run through the entire material. So they've got electron orbits that connect all atoms in the material, which is why metals are conductive and nonmetals are not. The nonmetals with the covalent bonds, where the electrons are restricted to a couple of nuclei, you try running electron current through it, and they find it very hard to jump from molecule to molecule in your compounds. The structure of the compounds will also tell you how stable it is. You can set up certain compounds so it takes more energy to pull the electrons out than it does to put them in, and that makes them stable. So for example, water is fairly stable compared to hydrogen and oxygen because you have to put a tremendous amount of energy in to break those bonds between the electrons in the nuclei. It's very difficult to get that hydrogen to split off from the oxygen and the other hydrogen and float away on its own. Whereas when you've got hydrogen and oxygen together, it doesn't take much energy to get them to bond in the first place, which is why they are both so volatile and easily combustible. So it is possible to build compounds with some of the properties that we've talked about earlier. The tricky part is that a lot of these are treated as rare and difficult to reproduce. So if you look at adamantium, we do know that one can be produced in the Marvel world. Vibranium, that sort of wonder metal that Wakanda has, that one is extremely difficult to reproduce. So that's not likely to be a compound. Adamantium is simply expensive to reproduce. It's not that the formula is unheard of, it's that most institutions don't have the money to make the stuff. So it could be a compound. Kryptonite we'll get to a little bit more probably at the end, because that one doesn't really fit the element compounder alloys as they are now. So it's possible that your vibranium and adamantium are compounds, more likely for adamantium, but it is pretty unlikely. Because of the rarity of these materials and the fact that you're most likely to be looking for a natural deposit, your best bet is to look for an alloy. So an alloy, it's kind of like the metals version of a compound. Instead of forming molecules, you form a crystal structure, as we were talking about with the graphite and the diamond, where you get repetitive patterns with various arrangements of the different electrons. This is the kind of bonding that we see in table salt. So we get sodium and chloride alternating in lines in all three dimensions. So you can have like x-axes, y-axes, z-axes, and each of them has alternating sodium and chloride atoms. So if you've got a sodium, you go up, down, left, right, back, and forward, you'll find chloride or chlorine next. If you find a chlorine atom, up, down, left, right, forward, back, you're going to find sodiums in all those positions. So it is a very regular repeating pattern. 
with alloys, people have found that if you put different elements together in different combinations, you can produce different types of metal. So that's where you get your bronzes, your brasses, your steels. Alloys have been very popular for a long time because we've discovered that the right combination of elements formed under the right set of conditions can produce an alloy or combination of metals that has useful properties. If we're talking about an alloy that can only be made under very extreme conditions, so say the vibranium alloy requires very low pressure, well then it would have ridden in on a meteorite and be very difficult to reproduce on Earth. You could have similar alloys that have similarly difficult reproduction conditions. So alloys are the most likely solution for your adamantiums, your vibraniums, not necessarily for your kryptonites. Kryptonite doesn't have a whole lot of metallic properties, even though it is treated as a power source for metallo. But with alloys, we have to understand how things work to get that stability. So if we look at some of the early studies of metals and alloys, we get into the studies of conductivity, both electrical conductivity and heat conductivity. Now, the electrical conductivity, that idea was the first one that really tested our understanding of materials in terms of classical physics. That was one of the first studies that told us there was something more going on. When we were first introduced to electrical resistance and conductivity in schools, if we talk about why different metals have resistance, it's usually in the context of what we call the Debye model. So Debye came up with an idea that seemed pretty straightforward at the time. Once we started getting into the idea that we had nuclei, Debye said, oh, well, this is where electrical resistance comes from. We have these electrons who can roam through the materials, and different materials would have different resistance because they've got different structural arrangements, and as these electrons are moving through the material, they collide with the different nuclei and bounce around, kind of like a ball on a ping pong table, or like the Plinko chips on the prices right. And the more collisions that they have along the way, then the more resistance we have. And that model is still very frequently taught today, because it's an important stepping stone in our understanding of things, and it seems very, very plausible. It was an excellent hypothesis. I call it a hypothesis and not a theory because there is a distinction between hypothesis and theory in science. Hypothesis is the idea you want to test. It doesn't graduate and become a theory until it's been tested by a variety of people under a variety of situations and withstood those tests. The Debye model does not withstand the tests of experiment at all. We are not talking about, say, Newton's laws, which work well under most conditions and break down under conditions we don't really run into day to day. No, I'm talking about a model that never held up even a little. When you actually do the math on the Debye model and try to use it to predict the resistance that you'll find in different compounds and different metals, it's not off by 5%. It's not off by 10%. It's off by more like 20,000%. It's not even close. And it actually took quantum mechanics to explain where electrical resistance comes from. And thermodynamics actually plays a pretty big part in it as well. So what was actually discovered is that the more regular and more repetitive your crystal structure is, the less electric resistance you have. So if you have an absolutely perfectly constructed crystal where every atom is exactly where it's supposed to be in a metal, you will actually have a perfect conductor. You will have zero resistance. It will become what's known as a superconductor. Well, we haven't discovered any superconductors at room temperature, even though the production and the creation of these is getting better and better and better. So the question is, why not? Why don't we have room temperature superconductors already? Well, that's because of thermodynamics. One of the laws of thermodynamics talks about entropy, which is the amount of chaos and disorder in the universe. If you're not at absolute zero, 
you must have some amount of entropy or some amount of chaos and irregularity. And that's what we see in these materials. That's where the electronic resistance comes from. So if you've got your entropy and you've got these little problems and issues in your material, which you are guaranteed to have at any temperature other than absolute zero, and you can't run conductive materials at absolute zero as soon as you run a current through them, it heats them up, you're going to introduce problems. That's when we can get superconductors at low temperatures, but not at high temperatures. We still have some issues when we're not running at absolute zero, but if we can get close enough to absolute zero in a well-made structure, in a well-made molecule, it may not be a perfect crystal all the way through, but there's enough chunks without imperfections that they will allow complete conductivity through that, and the electrons can go through those paths. Once the conducting electrons are restricted to these paths with zero imperfections, they flow very freely. That becomes a superconductor. But we have found cheats to that. We can use what we call doping. So we can take, for example, a chunk of iron that's nothing but iron and run current through it. We're going to get a certain amount of resistance. We find if we dope it, so if we replace some of the iron atoms in the crystal with atoms of a different element, they're able to distort the crystal matrix or distort that structure in such a way to produce local pockets that don't have a lot of resistance or possibly very, very tiny pockets that allow for superconductivity. This reduces the resistance, which reduces signal loss. So that's why a lot of the high-end audio and video cables will talk about doping and percentage of gold that's inserted or the gold plating. Those materials tend to have lower resistance so you get a better signal. But there's a limit to how low that resistance can get at room temperature no matter what material you're making it out of. We also have heat conductivity. And you conduct heat by allowing the nuclei in your structure to vibrate a little bit. And then those vibrations can move through the whole system. It's as if each atom is a ball and the bonds that connect them are springs. If you leave it alone and let it cool off, it will eventually become stable. But if you pull on one end, you're going to produce waves that get quickly transmitted to the other end. That's what heat conductivity is. That's the same thing with sound conductivity. The atoms have to be able to move. So when you're looking at your adamantiums, or in this particular case, very much your vibranium, which is meant to absorb all vibrations, this is where this comes into play. That tells us something very specific about the structure of vibranium. If it can absorb the vibrations in terms of momentum and the kinetic energy and heat, what it means is it's a very poor heat conductor. So it's almost always going to feel cold. So when you think about Cap running around with his vibranium alloy shield strapped to his back or strapped to his arm, it's always cold. And Steve Rogers has just learned to ignore that to deal with the task at hand because it's not going to be conducting a lot of heat. So it will never quite be at room temperature unless it's sitting there for a very, very long time. That also means it doesn't conduct sound very well. So we're not going to have a lot of sound effects, which could be why you know a lot of Cap's enemies don't hear that shield coming up from behind them. It doesn't vibrate a lot, so it doesn't produce the sound required to give them that warning sign. You can bank it off the back wall, and it comes back to hit them. But that's the downside to this. If it is vibranium, and it can absorb those impacts, and it can absorb sounds and heat conductivity so these guys don't know what's coming, the same vibranium that properties that allow it to absorb the impact of a bullet would prevent it from ricocheting nicely off walls as Cap throws that shield around. When his shield hits the back wall, if it doesn't absorb vibrations, it's not going to bounce back at almost the same speed it used to be. It's going to stop and drop like a stone. They are very related properties. You can't have one without the other. So from a scientific perspective, sadly, Cap's shield simply doesn't work. It would not ricochet with any effective measure. 
Now, if we look at adamantium in particular, the main thing that we see with adamantium is that it's very, very strong. It's very rigid. It's essentially the unbreakable metal. If it's produced under the right conditions, that would make sense. And those conditions would be pretty extreme and therefore expensive. So adamantium is treated very consistently. This is some type of alloy, which is structured in such a way that it takes a tremendous amount of energy to break those bonds. That will prevent it from breaking. Diamonds don't scratch everything else because they are completely unbreakable. They just scratch other things because the thing you're rubbing against is more likely to break than the diamond itself. Adamantium would be similar when we're talking about a custom-built alloy. It would just be more extreme. So adamantium, as we see it in Wolverine's skeleton and claws and Bullseye's skeleton, that actually functions. I believe it's also used in Ultron's shell in recent years as well. So the final exotic material we're going to look at is kryptonite. And what would that little beastie be? Kryptonite is the only exotic material we've been talking about today where the comics have provided a clear origin story. You know, we're not just finding the vibranium deposits. We're not just discovering adamantium either in the lab or in the ground. The planet Krypton exploded and it created this material. It transformed into kryptonite. So what that tells us is that it is a very specific radioisotope. So just as we talked about smashing atoms into each other to create new elements, we can bombard elements with radiation to make new isotopes. Now, an isotope is something that's chemically identical to another atom, but from a nuclear perspective, it's distinct, meaning it has the same number of protons in the nucleus, but a different number of neutrons. So for example, if you have just a proton floating around, that is a hydrogen one nucleus because it's just the proton. There's one nucleon, one proton or neutron in that nucleus. Sometimes you can have a proton and neutron that are attached to each other. That's hydrogen two. It's got two nucleons, one proton, one neutron. Chemically, they both have the same electron orbits with only minor differences in the energies caused because the neutron has a magnetic field that has some interplay there. But by and large, it's going to react pretty much the same way. The main reason that we look for H2 is for putting in nuclear power plants. If we use what we call heavy water, where all of your nuclei are both protons and neutrons in your hydrogens, then they are more radioactively stable. So as this nuclear power plant does its thing, you are less likely to have that cooling liquid become part of the reaction. So when we're looking at krypton and kryptonite, it could be difficult to determine simply because we have actually driven the elements to the high end of the periodic table, and they are unstable, but with surprisingly long half-lives. The half-life is the amount of time it takes half that material to decay, because each nucleus decays completely at random, but the probability of it decaying within a given amount of time is related to the difference in energy between the stable and unstable forms. So if there's a very small difference between the stable and unstable energy states, it tends to be fairly long-lived. If the unstable state requires considerably more energy to form than the stable state, and it would be a more explosive reaction, then it's more likely to happen, and you get a shorter half-life. So if we're looking at kryptonite, if we have something with a very long half-life, where the difference between the unstable and stable states is pretty small, then it is possible to have this compound out there that has a negative impact on Superman. It has a negative impact on humans as well. We did find that prolonged exposure did give Lex Luthor cancer. But again, that's prolonged exposure. It's not nearly as dramatic as the impact it has on Superman, which can mean a couple of things. One is that as we get the radioactive decay of kryptonite, these byproducts are a chemical toxin to kryptonians, but not to humans, which speaks to a very different physiology, which then basically says that Clark, when he eats human food, 
he doesn't necessarily process it the same way, and he he must have a completely different internal metabolism. So it opens up a lot on the biology side for Superman. The other option is that somehow Kryptonians actually use nuclear processes in their biology, and that the introduction of this particular type of unstable element somehow interferes with the normal processing of his body. Now, in that case, someone as brilliant as Lex Luthor would have two options. He would recognize these possibilities. If it is the case where the nuclear process is part of Superman's natural metabolism, well, he doesn't need to reproduce kryptonite per se. He needs to find a way to produce the radioactive particles that kryptonite emits with the same energy and the same isotopes and just expose Superman to those. So he doesn't need kryptonite. He can simulate it, kind of like the raid the computer came up with at the end of Superman 3 if you haven't already blocked Superman 3 from your memory. So there is a possibility of having something like kryptonite that would affect Superman. It depends largely on the differences between human and Kryptonian biology. Going into that in more detail would basically be a podcast entirely on its own. If you'd like to hear that podcast or like to make any other suggestions about what topics this podcast should cover in the future, please send them to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. As always, you are welcome to leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you are accessing the podcast from. And we'll join you again next month. Thank you for listening.